All right. Good morning, Perch and Missio. Uh, it's a great honor to be able to worship together with members of Perch.Church and Missio together on this uh, Sunday morning. This is a very um, bittersweet Sunday because um, it is my last official Sunday uh, with Missio as their church plant resident. And so I kind of thought it'd be a good idea to um, give my sermon outside, as you can see in our backyard, um, to give you a little bit of like green scenery in the background since, I don't know, uh, we're all always cooped up inside. And so for my last Sunday, I really wanted to uh, end strong. And so I asked Len if I could, um, you know, share one last sermon officially uh, with Missio. And, you know, he was happy to oblige. Um, but with all that's going on right now, I was thinking a lot about uh, what kind of message I could leave us all with, um, especially in light of everything that's going on. I was thinking... Should I reflect some more on like what's happening with me or should we reflect some more together with what's happening in the world uh, with the pandemic and the racial injustice and the economy and all of that stuff. And so I think it's um, appropriate to really just talk about what's happening right now in the world. And so I thought Micah 6, 8, uh, Micah 6, 1 through 8 was a very appropriate passage for what's going on right now. Um, so a few days ago, I conducted a short survey with some members from Perch.Church. I had just texted a bunch of people individually, and I had asked him to answer in their own words, uh, what does it mean to live justly? What does it mean to live justly? I thought it was a relatively simple question, but it actually turned out to be more difficult than I had initially thought. I got a wide variety of answers, um, and here are some of them. Uh, Chris said, using one's resources and privilege to promote what is just and reject what is unjust. That's a pretty good one. Joanne said, living justly means living by the golden rule, uh, treating others the way you want to be treated. Melanie said, living within your morals. Sue said, being able to be transparent with your actions and not afraid to show what I do or have done before. Now, it's interesting that uh, even within our own church community, we have such a wide variety of interpretations of justice. This reveals that while everyone wants justice, the way people understand and define justice is very different, right? Everyone wants justice. Who out there doesn't want justice, right? But the way people understand and define justice is very, very different. So how do we pursue justice collectively if everyone's definition of justice is different? Well, we really have to return to what Scripture says about justice. Specifically, we have to pay attention to what God taught his people thousands of years ago regarding justice, mercy, and humility. And surprisingly, it's just as relevant now as it was thousands of years ago when God gave this, these commands and these words to his people, the Israelites. The passage that we just read was from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. 
And the book of Micah was written by a prophet uh, by the name of Micah around 700 BC concerning the southern kingdom of Judah. At that time, Israel's history, the Israelites were divided up into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Originally, they had lived together as one, a unified kingdom, but after years of power struggle, political, disagreement, uh, political disagreements, and various people claiming their deserved rights as kings, uh, the kingdom was split in two. Ever since Israel appointed their first human king, Saul, over their nation, their nation became more and more secular, depending more and more on themselves rather than God. And when the kingdom was split into the north and southern kingdom, the Israelites became even less dependent on God and led more by human standards rather than God's standards. In the Old Testament, uh, the last 12 books of the Bible, or the last 12 books of the Old Testament are called the Minor Prophets. They are all focused on the careers of these 12 different prophets, but because the books are short in length, they're called Minor Prophets, as opposed to major prophets like Isaiah, Daniel, and Jeremiah, where those books are much longer. So they're not called Minor Prophets because they're any less important. They're simply called Minor Prophets because their books are shorter. Now, the career of a prophet in the Old Testament um, is, was especially difficult because most of their prophecies concerning the Israelites tended to be very negative. They were often rebukes, condemnations, or even curses, and which is true for the book that we're reading today, which is Micah. In today's passage, God is confronting the Israelites with this very issue, the fact that the Israelites have become so secular in their lifestyle and in the way that they worship God and in their faith uh, that God really just gives them a harsh condemnation, a harsh rebuke. And the scenario that we have in today's passage is almost like a courtroom scene where the Israelites are being accused by God, the prosecutor, for their lack of worship and their lifestyle and their conduct. All right, so this is kind of like the setup, right? Uh, we have the courtroom scene, right? And God is the prosecutor, okay? He's kind of like that lawyer who's like doing the prosecution. And Israel is the suspect or the accused of committing a certain kind of crime, right? And creation itself is like the jury, all right? The creation itself is like the jury, which is why in verses 1 and 2, uh, begins by saying, uh, Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusations. Okay, so literally like the mountains and all of creation uh, and the earth is kind of like the jury, right? And so God confronts them, right? And then he, begin, he begins his prosecution by saying things like, how have I wronged you? What did I do to deserve this treatment? Right? And, and he's, he's approaching them as if they directly offended God themselves. Okay? It's not as if uh, God is speaking on behalf of those that they've hurt. Right? God is actually speaking in the first person. And he's saying, how have I wronged you? Right? And as he is saying this, 
right? As he is saying this, he begins it by referring to them as my people, right? My people. And this is a... this is kind of like a, a, a word of love. This is almost like uh, what you would call your own community, right? And, and as God is saying this and as he is rebuking them and judging them, he, he, he is saying it with this terminology of, of love and affection. He calls them my people, right? So it, it pains God. It pains him to say this to his own people whom he created whom he protected, and whom he provided for, for literally thousands of years. So God even gives a, a brief history or a track record with the Israelites, highlighting all uh, some of the things that God has done for them, right? Uh, he begins by talking about Moses and Egypt, which is a very well-known and obvious one where God brought the Israelites out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, right? And then he talks about uh, Balak and Balaam, all right? And they were former enemies of the Israelites. Balak was the king of Moab, Moab and Balaam was kind of like a, a dark wizard or um, some sort of like sorcerer, right? And, and God had defeated them, right? And he also talks about these two towns, uh, Sh uh, Shatim and Gilgal, right? And this is where Joshua and the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, okay? One part of the Jordan River was Shatim, and then the other part was Gilgal, right? And so God is listing just like really quickly uh, a, a brief track record of all the ways that he's provided for them, right? And ultimately, he says the only thing that he really desired from his people is that they know the righteous acts of the Lord. They know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, the way that this phrase is written in English, we, we really don't get a full understanding of what God is talking about, right? But just that verb to know uh, in the original Hebrew, okay, it means uh, it's, it's, uh, it's what's called an infinitive, infinitive construct, which means to know and continue to know, right? Um, like if you say, for example, right, um, like my son is sleeping, Okay, if I say my son is sleeping, okay, it means he fell asleep, but he's continuing to sleep, right? And so when God was demanding that his people know the righteous acts of the Lord, what he is ultimately saying to them is to remember, remember God's goodness, remember the ways that God has provided for you, remember the ways that he has protected you and watched over you for all of these, all of these years, for centuries. And what the Israelites did was forget God's goodness and what they were really just doing was practicing routines they forgot God's goodness and they were practicing routines this is what empty religion looks like is when you forget God's goodness you're not living a life of gratitude and you're just practicing routines Israel was blessed with freedom, with their own land, with their own government, and with prosperity. Not because they were so great, it was actually despite themselves. It was really God that blessed them, right? The Israelites were blessed with freedom, with land, and with prosperity, and their own government. And instead of using that prosperity and privilege to help others, they became more greedy 
they became more individualistic and more apathetic to the needs of others. Does this sound a little familiar to you? I'm really hoping that one thing that this pandemic and racial injustice will abruptly put to a halt is consumer Christianity. And, you know, even just this gathering, okay, uh, many churches call Sundays, uh, gatherings at church, uh, worship service, right? And it's ironic because um, most churchgoers don't really go to church to serve anybody, right? If anything, most churchgoers go to church hoping to be served, right? Maybe that's why they call it uh, church service because they're going to and they're expecting to be served or something. Now, we've created this weird church culture for the past, like, I don't know, century or something where uh, we judge or grade churches by how it makes us feel, right? Or how satisfying uh, the church service was, right? If the music was great or if we were able to, like, uh, laugh during the sermon or if the uh, temperature in the room was like just right right and then we we gauge it by all these things that really doesn't like that god really had that like doesn't care about at all right and we, we've been living in this post-christian culture now for several years okay um some sociologists and scholars contend that post-modernity uh, started even before the turn of the 21st century, right? Some sometime in the 90s, okay? But th during the, these past few months, during the pandemic and the exposing, exposing of all this racial injustice that's uh, been happening, it really confronted most Christians with their own sense of consumerism, especially with regard to their faith. And now... Even now, like what are some things that people primarily observe when they're looking for a church, right? Probably how close it is to their home, maybe, right? That the commute's not too long. Uh, probably how great the live music sounds on Sundays. Or maybe how dynamic and entertaining the preacher is. But now, for the past three months, since almost every church has been meeting online, all that stuff doesn't really matter, right? The music is not the same, right, uh, on, on a computer as it is, like, in, in person. Uh, and as good as preachers are live, right, it doesn't communicate exactly uh, on the screen. The things that people are left with when they're looking for a community now are things like Christ-centered relationships, biblical values, and missional living which are kind of the opposite of consumer Christianity. Which brings us back to today's passage. The things that many churchgoers and Christians thought were really important are now being really reevaluated, re right? And God was doing this with the Israelites, and he is, in many ways, he's doing this with us now, right? And he's confronting us with the reality that the things that we thought were so important are really not that important anymore. Interestingly, God contrasts what the Israelites believed to be pleasing gifts to, the, to God 
with what God really desired from them all along, which is found in verse 8 of today's passage, right? Uh, God desired for, from his people to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord, right? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord or walk humbly with God. And all these other things that the Israelites believed to be pleasing God was actually not pleasing God at all. In fact, it was just pissing him off. <laughs> and to have a greater understanding uh, of this, right, we need to contrast these things next to each other, right? Because first, God desires justice over offerings. God desires justice over offerings. Earlier, when I mentioned that we conducted a short survey with some members of Church, I asked them, what does it mean to live justly? And we got a variety of responses, right? And I just shared with you just some of them, not all of them. And so I tried to compile, uh, com compile all of these together, right? Into a short, concise response, right? After kind of chewing on these responses for a couple days, right? I think I came up with a concise response to this question. To live justly means to do what is right and to right what is wrong. To live justly means to do what is right and to right what is wrong. Now in Micah 6 verse 8, even the way that this command is phrased, it's a very active command, right? It says, act justly. Other versions of the Bible say, do justice, right? Actually, do justice. And pursuing a life of justice is by no means is it a passive thing. Justice goes beyond mere kindness, okay? Justice goes beyond just being kind. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gives a great example of what justice looks like as opposed to kindness. He, he used this analogy where if you see someone fall into a ditch and you help that person out of the ditch, that's kindness. And you can continually show kindness every time someone falls into that ditch. But when that person actually comes and fills up the ditch so that no one else will fall into it, that's justice. That's justice. So kind of looking at that example, right? Justice is very different from kindness. Justice has to go beyond kindness, right? Kindness really helps one person at a time, right? Uh, while justice seeks to make things equal for all. And not only is justice different from kindness, justice looks kind of unkind sometimes. Sometimes in order for justice to exist, we need to be rude. <laughs> this is why God seemed so rude to the Israelites uh, like in today's passage when he's coming down really hard on them, right? And he's like rebuking them like and he's really putting his fist down, right? And we even see Jesus being unkind at times, right? Because he sees injustice happening. One prime example is Jesus being rude at the temple when he sees all these money changers and people profiting at the temple when really it should be a house of worship, right? He's like flipping over tables and he's like, whipping things and like whipping people i don't know but he had he had a whip right and so justice actually looks kind of rude sometimes in fact let, let me let me take it one step further sometimes 
kindness can get in the way of justice, right? Kindness can be an obstacle to justice because we don't want to be rude or because we don't want to make things awkward or we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. We don't act justly. But in order to do justice, in order to act justly, sometimes we have to be rude. We have to call out our family member when they're saying something racist. We need to get mad at people when they're mistreating others because of their background or their nationality. Justice requires boldness, not passivity. And so Jesus, God is all about justice, right? Uh, but Jesus, for example, uh, he was all about justice. And today we sang that song, Lion and the Lamb, right? And more often than not, Jesus is a lion. He's a fierce lion ready to destroy evil and aggressively take down injustice in this world. The only reference to Jesus being a lamb is really talking about himself being the sacrificial lamb when he was hung on the cross and like slaughtered for our sins, okay? That's really the only reference to Jesus as a lamb, right? But most other times, Jesus is a lion. He's a fierce lion ready to take down injustice and face evil head on. And this is exactly what God wants us to be as his people, to be a man or a woman of justice. And the other requirement that God desired from his people is mercy. Because God desires mercy over sacrifice. God desires mercy over sacrifice. Now, mercy is synonymous with compassion. And if uh, justice is more action-oriented, then mercy is focusing on the heart, right? Mercy is more heart-oriented. Now, one of the problems that the Israelites in the southern kingdom had was that they would give God these, like, extravagant worship, right, worship, but they would neglect the poor in the city. They would sing all these beautiful songs, but they wouldn't care for the sick, the widow, or the orphan. Now, was it bad that the Israelites were making sacrifices to God? Of course not, right? Is it bad that they were giving these like elaborate offerings to God? No, no, of course not. Those are all very good things. But what upset God the most is that the Israelites would give these elaborate offerings and extravagant sacrifices at the temple but ignore those in need right outside the gates. The problem with Western American Christianity is that most of us think far too dualistically, right? Like good and evil, right? Black or white, right? Uh, we, we think that if we're not committing evil or if we're not that one actually like doing harm, then we're right with God. But that's actually far from true, okay? That's a very limited way of thinking. And in order for us to have mercy or compassion for others, we need to be actively caring for those in need. We need to be actively searching out, uh, ser searching out for the oppressed and care for those who are suffering. Many people might believe that the opposite of mercy is cruelty, but that's actually not true. The opposite of mercy is indifference. The opposite of mercy is indifference. 
Most Americans think that because we're not actively doing cruel things to others, that we're free of guilt. But the case that God was making against the Israelites in Micah 6 uh, is the same charge that God is making against American Christians. That because of your indifference, because of your lack of care, because of your apathy, you are just as cruel as those who are carrying out those acts of evil. We're painfully reminded of this recently, aren't we? With the death of George Floyd. While George Floyd was being murdered by former officer Derek Chauvin, uh, and it was extremely sadistic and cruel, the indifference and lack of intervention from the other three officers who were right there seems just as bad, doesn't it? While they weren't the ones with their knees on the back of George Floyd's neck, their indifference seems just as cruel. As Christ followers, if we see black Americans dying at the hands of law enforcement without just cause, and we don't grieve over that, there is something deeply wrong with our faith. Loving mercy means that we have to have the same heart of God. God wants your heart to break for the same things that break his heart. God wants you to get angry at the same things that he gets angry about. God wants you to rejoice at the same things that he rejoices at. Ultimately, this will lead you back first to action, which is justice. And really, what these two things are describing is God himself. God is a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy. God is a God who takes action, but he is also a God who has heart for those who are suffering. Lastly, God desires humility over fruits and results. God desires humility over fruits or results. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that God is pleased with his people doing the right thing but being arrogant about it? Now, I'm going to say something that might upset a lot of people um, because I'm not supposed to get political, right? But uh, I am constantly frustrated at the political state of our country. Um, more specifically, like the political state of the church. Okay? Because um, I don't know whether I'm liberal or conservative. Honestly, I, I really don't. My conservative friends think I'm too liberal and my liberal friends think I'm too conservative, right? But if I'm really being honest, I'm just really annoyed with everyone. <laughs> I'm just so sick and tired of everybody. I'm frustrated with conservatives because many of them seem so narrow-minded and stubborn. But I'm also frustrated with liberals because they kind of have uh, a savior complex and um, kind of like no boundaries whatsoever, right? And so what's underlying all of that uh, for both the far right and the far left, okay, is arrogance. It's pride. And... Is it okay to do the right thing but be arrogant about it? 
to me, that almost zeroes out. To me, it like nullifies the whole thing. To do the right thing, but to be arrogant, arrogant about it, reveals that it's really uh, out of selfish intent, right? Uh, this is why walking in humility is so important. It reminds us that we are mere humans. And maybe this is why God refers to us as mortals in the beginning of verse 8, right? To remind us that He is God and we are mere mortal, finite, limited human beings. I think most people are wondering when things will go back to normal. I know I'm wondering that, right? Uh, when will things go back to normal? When will the coronavirus end so that the world can go back to the way it was? And I don't know about you, but I kind of don't want things to go back to normal. At least not the way they were before coronavirus, before all this racial injustice, right? Um, because the norm before was hyper-individualism, right? Uh, insatiable greed and a complete apathy to pain around us. And one of the things that is, well, there's a, actually a lot of like surprising benefits to this whole thing, as painful as this season has been, right? But one of the things that uh, has happened in America these days is that people are starting to wake up, right? And I'm not just talking about Christians, right? Christians for sure, but just Americans in general, like people are starting to wake up, right? We're realizing that we're actually not that far from slavery, uh, Jim Crow, right? Segregation, right? We're not that far removed from it, right? And we're realizing that uh, the economy, the, the racial injustice that we see in the economy is so vast, right? Uh, and, and this uh, global pandemic has really put a spotlight on that. Okay? And we're realizing how desperate we are for community. Having been isolated for the past three months, we're so desperate for community. And now, more than ever, people are hungering and longing for meaning, for real spiritual purpose and meaning. And so I kind of don't want to go back to the way things were prior to all of this, right? I want us as a human race, particularly though specifically for the American church, to become better, to become uh, more justice-oriented, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Let's pray. Lord, reveal the sin in our hearts. Reveal the selfishness of our ways. And reveal to us the indifference, the indifference that we've lived with for all these years. Lord, as painful as this season has been, with all the illnesses, unemployment, and even deaths, and violence, 
Lord, you are doing something amazing in the hearts and in the spirits of every single American. Lord, we welcome your Holy Spirit into our hearts. And we open ourselves up to you, God. And we say, have your way. Lord, have your way. Give us that same heart of a lion that you have to abolish racism, to end injustice, to get mad at the things that you get mad at. Lord, to break our hearts for the things that break your heart and to rejoice for the things that you rejoice. We thank you, Lord. And we say, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.